seven Baptist churches in the colonies of North America, 14 of them in New England. When he died in 1806, the Baptists had become the largest denomination in the United States with over a thousand congregations in all of the colonies and settlements and 250 of them in New England alone. Bacchus's life spans the explosion and really the permanent foundation of Baptists in the United States. He's worthy of our attention. Bacchus was born, as I said, in 1724, January 9th to be exact, in a community called Norwich, Connecticut. It's on the southern section, slightly to the east, uh, in an outstanding, long-standing, well-to-do New England congregational family. He was baptized as an infant into the, the congregational church in Norwich, the church that embraced what is known as the halfway covenant and appears to have embraced with some vengeance what is called Stoddardism. The halfway covenant really allowed infants to be baptized uh, whose parents could not make a profession of faith, but nonetheless did not live scandalous lives and agreed with the basic tenets of Christianity. Uh, if you could do that, then your children were free to be baptized. Stoddard took that a step further and applied that criteria really not just to baptism, but to the Lord's Supper. And to some degree, it appears with Stoddard that communion was at least potentially um, a converting ordinance. Now, that doesn't mean he believed it to, in and of itself, uh, transform the soul, but he himself appears to have come to saving faith while serving communion. And so he expanded that. Uh, created a lot of havoc. Those of you who studied Jonathan Edwards know it was in disagreeing with his grandfather in 1749 and 50 that he lost his pulpit in Northampton. Isaac's father was Samuel Bacchus. Uh, he did not make a formal profession of faith until 1736, some 12 years after Isaac was born at 44 years of age and only four years before his own death in 1740. So Isaac was 12 when his father came to saving faith was only 16 when his father died. It appears from this that his most, uh, the most influence in his life spiritually was his mother Elizabeth, who became a believer in 1723 and spoke often of the gospel to her children. Um, uh, and Isaac speaks quite warmly of the piety of his mother. But it wasn't until the Great Awakening was exploding in the colonies that Isaac came to saving faith. Uh, he, he, he speaks of it in a, in a later piece that he has written at the age of 17, 1741, slightly uh, just a few days really before George Whitfield was due to come through Norwich. Isaac Backus writes, as I was moving, mowing alone in the field, not mooing, mowing, mowing, <laughs> uh, as I was mowing alone in the field, <laughs> That's just, I'm sorry, that's just too much. Um, <laughs> you're not helping. <laughs> I 
At any rate, August 24, 1741, all my past life was opened plainly before me, and I saw clearly that it had been filled with sin. I went and sat down in the shade of a tree where my prayers and tears, my hearing the word of God and striving for a better heart with all my doings were set before me in such light that I perceived I could never make myself better should I live ever so long. Divine justice appeared clear in my condemnation, and I saw that God had a right to do with me as he would. My soul yielded into his hands, fell at his feet, and was silent and calm before him. And while I sat there, I was enabled by divine light to see the perfect righteousness of Christ and the freeness and richness of his grace with such clearness that my soul was drawn forth to trust in him for salvation. And I wondered that others did not also come to him who had enough for all. The word of God and the promises of his grace appeared then a rock, and I was astonished at my previous unbelief. My heavy burden was gone, tormenting fears were fled, and my joy was unspeakable. I wish I could say it with that level of poetry. Bacchus came to saving faith. He did. It took him a few, a few months to join the congregational church in Norwich, not because he had anything wrong with churches, but because he questioned the legitimacy of the practices of that church. He eventually joined, but was only with them for a short period of time before he became what is known as a separate congregationalist. Because of the Great Awakening and the split, the New Light, Old Light split that occurred in New England among the congregational churches, a number of people began to question the practice of celebrating communion with unbelievers, the Stoddardism that had been put in place. And so many of them decided it was inappropriate for them to celebrate the supper while at the same time seeing unbelievers do the same and began to separate. Additionally, there was in Connecticut the uh, the enactment of the Saybrook platform in the early 1700s, which gave greater and greater authority to the ministerial consociations that were being established. These groups of ministers would meet, and the Saybrook platform actually gave those ministerial associations uh, authority over the congregations and began to act somewhat in a Presbyterian fashion. C.C. Gowen, interestingly, calls them uh, and my Presbyterian brothers may want to put their fingers in their ears, um, ecclesiocrats. <laughs> it's an interesting term. But several congregations began to split and start separate congregational churches. And Bacchus uh, and his mother and his brother were some of those who did the same in Norwich. Uh, because of their separation, and it took a while, they were brought up on charges before the church. And on October 17, 1745, the church voted to excommunicate Isaac, his brother Samuel, and his mother Elizabeth. Nine months later, on July 16, 1746, the Bacchuses covenanted with seven others to form what is then known as the Bean Hill Separate Church in Norwich, Connecticut. Just to get a sense of the tumult uh, in the social structures of New England at the time, there are actually three separate churches started in Norwich. Uh, during that period. So Bacchus is now a separate congregationalist or a strict congregationalist. He became a preacher and a pastor following soon afterwards. In September of 1746, 
Only two months after the formation of the Titicate Bean Hill Church, Bacchus, uh, pardon me, the uh, Norwich Bean Hill Church, Bacchus sends to call to preach, and on September 28, 1746, the call was tested and confirmed by the congregation. They asked him to preach a sermon. The next day, he headed out on itinerant preaching with his pastor Norcott uh, in other places in Connecticut. There wasn't much time for reflection. In his manuscripts in, uh, at Andover Newton Theological Seminary, there's a small manuscript volume, the cover of which Bacchus has written, List of Journeys. He kept track of all of his itinerant travels over the course of his ministry that were of more than 10 miles in length. And in this small 70-page hand-stitched volume, he lists 918 such journeys between 1746 and 1802, totaling some 68,499 miles. Those are just the ones he recorded. And just for the record, that was either on foot or on horseback. Uh, There's even a record of a few times when he came back without the horse. The horse didn't always survive. Bacchus began at this point to write and to wrestle with the theological issues of his day. And it is during this period that one of his more important documents was published. Uh, If you remember, those of you that have studied the Great Awakening, one of the most famous sermons of the Great Awakening is that by Gilbert Tennant, The Danger of an Unconverted Ministry. Bacchus in 1754 published a discourse showing the nature and necessity of an internal call to preach the everlasting gospel. See, in much of New England at the time, there was not the necessity of an internal call to preach. Most of the time, if you went off to to college, you got a degree, you came before the consociation of ministers, you satisfied them as to your knowledge, you could apply to a church, gain a pastorate, and there wasn't a, a sense or a necessity to test an internal call to ministry. The New Lights saw the need to recover this, and Bacchus and, Gen- and Tennant together, at least according to William McLaughlin, a famous historian of Bacchus, said that between Bacchus and Tennant, they formed a basic contribution to the development of evangelicalism in America. It's a foundational piece, and it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a rich read even to this day. Bacchus not only was a preacher, but he became a pastor. In December of 19, 1747, he preached for the first time in a community called Titicate, Massachusetts. It's now known as, as Middleborough. I think I said Marlborough the other day, and Jim corrected me. It's easy to mix them up, but not geographically, only by their names. In February of 1748, the separate church of Titicate was formed, and on April 13th of that year, Uh, Bacchus was installed as his first pastor. So he enters the pastorate. Things began to change rapidly. He was in the pastorate. He had not yet embraced Baptist principles, but they were coming at him with a vengeance. Uh, One of the first things they dealt with in the Titicate Baptist Church was to confirm a regenerate church membership, at least when it comes to visible sainthood and the celebration of the Lord's Supper. The confession of the Titicate Church reads, The door of the church should be carefully kept at all times against all such as cannot give scriptural evidence of their union to Christ by faith. Bacchus and the Titicate believers saw themselves returning to the standards of the founding fathers of colonial 
Massachusetts, the Puritans' desire of a visible sainthood. And so they founded the church on that principle. Um, Things began to move rather fast. Uh, One of the things that happened in, in, in the separate churches is Baptists started to rise fairly rapidly. It was obvious that if people began to question the legitimacy of communion, you must be regenerate to be to celebrate communion, is really the door of the church before the communion table. Why isn't it the door of the church is baptism? And they began to question that, and Baptists began to rise all over the place. One of the fruits of that, of course, was that one day Bacchus found two such in his own congregation. In 1749, two members of his own church opened a public discussion advocating believers' baptism. Bacchus notes in his diary, hot disputes and vehement urgings we had among us on both sides. Uh, The pastoral ministry, as we've heard this morning, and as most of us know, is often a place where the best and the worst of men are exposed. Bacchus' response to the situation is interesting and I think instructive, and I'll take just a few minutes here partly because it shows that he did just about everything wrong you can do as a pastor. His first response to the debate within his congregation was avoidance. He actually went on a journey. I don't know about you. (laughs) Kind of like the idea sometimes. It didn't work. His second response was rashness. Deciding in kind of a rash way one day, that the reason he was so objected to believers' baptism, uh, that, that he so objected to believers' baptism, if it, it's so bad, it must be true. So we go from avoiding to just rashness. Uh, in, 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 in the quickness of it all, he preached a sermon that Sunday on Romans chapter 6, advocated believers' baptism by immersion only, and as you can well guess, things didn't get any better. He says it caused much confusion among the hearers. Meanwhile, while he was away on another itinerant trip, a Baptist from Brimfield, Massachusetts, by the name of Ebenezer Moulton, came and baptized nine of his church members. (laughs) What did he do? Well, if foolish advocacy doesn't work, try reversal. In September of 1749, he reversed his position on baptism, made public confession to the church, and proceeded to baptize, he says, Sister Richmond's child. What followed was division. Several of those newly baptized adults withdrew from the church. Finally, on, August, or on July 20th, 1751, Bacchus decided that maybe he really ought to study the subject. Alva Holvey, his first biographer, best biographer, and as far as I know, there's only one other real, uh, real biography of Bacchus done. Um, Alva Holvey says this about him. Having thus borne for almost two years the tortures of doubting respecting the subjects and mode of baptism, he set apart Sunday, July 20th, 751, as a day of secret fasting and prayer to seek once more the direction of God. After confessing his sins and earnestly imploring divine help, He took Wilson's Scripture Manual, which is a volume published in Advocacy of Baptism, and seriously examined every particular passage of God's Word which relates to baptism, 
and was forced to give in. That the sentiments of Mr. Wilson appeared to be according to the mind of Christ, but he was led at the same time by this comprehensive and prayerful survey to conclude that none ought to be baptized and thus have the outward mark of Christ's disciples put on them except those who give evidence of believing in him. On July 25th, 1751, he made that, he informed his church of his change of sentiments, and on the 22nd of August of that same year, he was baptized. Well, as you can guess, controversy ensued. This is taking me longer than I thought, but this is important stuff. Four church councils were called to try to deal with the issues within the Titicate Church. I could go through the details with you. They're rather interesting and at some points almost comical, but I won't. They met on October 2nd, 1751. They advocated that Bacchus was correct. They met on 1725 or May 25, 1752, and this council reversed the previous one. November 1st, they met again. And then finally, January 31st, 1753, a fourth council met to try to straighten out the affairs at the Titicate Church, and they declined to respond. Their note was, because the difficulty that labored here was about baptisms being a bar to communion, and that was a case that affected all the churches. This was a wise decision, I believe, on behalf of the council. There were some 125 uh, separate churches that had practiced open communion, and there was ongoing controversy, and they decided that this finally needed to be handled not by a local church council, but by a general assembly. A general assembly was called in May of 1753 in Exeter, Rhode Island, but only only 20% of the churches showed. They advocated on behalf of open communion, Open communion being both Baptists and Congregationalists could celebrate communion together. But two particular men who were important to the overall discussion, a fellow by the name of Solomon Payne and another by the name of Thomas Stevens, didn't attend. So they called a second General Assembly for May 29th of 1754. It was the largest meeting ever and would stand historically as that of the separates or the strict Congregationalists. Seventy-seven messengers were sent. Uh, Stevens and Payne advocated not any longer open communion for the separate congregational churches, but closed communion unless your mind was not made up. So they changed the position. The congregationalists moved from open communion to a position of closed communion. And it's, it's a fascinating move. Uh, and it's, it's one that cost the separate congregationalists greatly. The call ended with 77 messengers when the question was given, voting. 37 voted in favor of eliminating those who were in their conscience avowed Baptists. 35 against, 5 abstained. The congregational churches had, in a sense, excommunicated the Baptists. William McLaughlin states it this way, The Congregationalists won the battle, and lost the war. Bacchus in his diary records on his way home, he says, I came down to Westerly, and by, by way of reviewing things, my soul had fresh sorrow and felt so sunk that I wished rather to die than to live. The effect was twofold. 
First, it forced Bacchus to become a closed communion Baptist. He finally made the move out of congregationalism to full-blown Baptist principles. He, he left the church. He, he resigned from the church in Titicate. He didn't leave the community. He resigned the, the separate church and formed the first Baptist church of Middleborough, January 16, 1756. Six months later, on June 23rd, he was installed as the pastor. The Confession of Faith on the subject of baptism and the Lord's Supper now reads as follows. That baptism and the Lord's Supper are ordinances of Christ to be continued until a second coming and that the former is requisite to the latter. That is to say that those are to be admitted into the communion of the church and to partake of all its ordinances who upon profession of their faith have been baptized by immersion in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. The second result is not only did Bacchus become a Baptist, but he actually was thrust into the leadership among the Baptists. It began in January 1756 when he published a short description of the difference between the bondwoman and the free as they are two covenants and the characters and conditions of each of their children. Bacchus dealt with the subject of baptism on the basis of covenant theology. He called the bondwoman the old covenant, the free woman the new covenant. And he says in his, in his work, the chief reason of all this confusion, meaning about baptism, I conceive to be men's jumbling the constitution of the Old Testament church and the new together. Well, Bacchus is now a Baptist. And in the few minutes I have left, I'd like to talk about his influence as a Baptist. I'm going to kind of step out of a chronology at this point and start to look at just some particular points. First of all, as a pastor, we would have loved to have had a man of this nature uh, as a pastor, I'm sure. C.C. Gowen summarizes Bacchus's pastoral ministry after taking the helm of the Titicate Baptist Church in this way. Having put his hand to the plow, he not only never looked back, but pushed straight on down the furrow. The story of the next several years is one of vigorous local ministry, far-reaching evangelistic tours, ready response to requests for aid from sister churches old and new, and indefatigable zeal in seeking new converts. Just so you know, C.C. Gowen is a secular historian. This is his assessment of Bacchus. Let me just give you one instance from his diary to get a sense of the pastoral heart. He pastored the church for 53 years. Uh, It never averaged more than 100 members, uh, but he loved them dearly. He has this series of accounts in his diary, October 11th. It's a Tuesday. He said, visited Brother James Hooper's daughter, Abiel, found her very dangerously ill with the quick fever. I believe the quick fever was malaria. Many people don't know that uh, New England had malaria at the time. Oh, that God would have compassion on her soul and also awaken her fellow youth hereby out of their dreadful stupidity. Uh, I really am an advocate for returning stupidity to the lexicon of uh, the public arena. But remember here, by stupidity, he means in a stupor, dulled senses, not uh, an intellectual category. A few days later, on Friday, October 14th, he records this morning, I called again to see her and found her very low. The doctor judged her to be past hope of recovery, and she appeared much concerned about her soul and told me that she thought herself the vilest creature that ever lived. 
Her parents appeared to be in resigned, comfortable frame, and my soul enjoyed sweet freedom in praying and discoursing with her. From thence I went and preached at Mr. David Pratt's in the east of Bridgewater, and by the way, both in going and returning, I found uncommon outgoings of heart to God for the life, both of her body and soul. And some persuasions in my mind that he would grant my petitions for his own sake. When I came back in the evening, they told me that after I went away, her distress of soul increased till a little, little afternoon. Then light break into her mind and she said that Christ excuse me, <clears throat> that Christ had taken away all her sins washed her soul as white as snow. The account of this is fascinating by the fact that Bacchus never bothers to record whether she lived or died. (laughs) But he does say the following uh, Sunday evening, he says, Since Friday night, I have, through God's goodness, had great wrestlings in prayer for the conversion of the rising generation among us. And this morning, while I preached from Galatians 4.19, I found I could truly adopt the Apostle's words, My little children, of whom I travail in birth till Christ be formed in you. Oh, what longing of soul I felt that this great work might be accomplished in them. Lord, hasten it in its time. He clearly had A rich pastor's heart. Bacchus also was a publicist or a polemicist, I guess I could say. He wrote a number of works, 37 in all. Uh, Some of them published more than once. Um, His most famous piece is a history of New England with particular reference to the denomination of Christians called Baptists. Interestingly enough, it is still highly prized by secular historians as a fundamental piece of Baptist history and is even to this day still in print. As a matter of fact, Mercer University uh, is considering printing a critical edition of it uh, down the road. He, uh, he published on believers' baptism. He published on evangelical Calvinism. It's an interesting interchange he had with some of the ministers of his day, uh, one by the name of Fish, and one of his works is called A Fish Caught in a Net. And uh, if, you've, uh, if you've read any of the titles of Uh, 17th and 18th century polemical works. He took advantage of every one of those little twists and turns of language that they could. But he also wrote from a pastor's heart because he he published a work called Family Prayer, Not to be Neglected. And so he was a Calvinist. He was an evangelical Calvinist. He was a Baptist and he was a pastor. He was a historian and all those are reflected in his publications. He is considered by some to be the most influential author of the late um, 1700s and himself proclaimed that he had published more than any of the Baptists of his own day. Well, the third thing we look at is he became a promoter of the Baptist cause. As I've said already, he traveled far and wide. From 17, uh, Alva Hovey says, from 1756 to 1767, he baptized 62 individuals, preached 2,412 sermons, and traveled beyond the limits of his own parish, 14,691 miles. He's doing all he can, not just to, to, to be a pastor to his own congregation, but to see 
people come to Saving Faith and join together in Baptist churches. In his manuscript volume, The List of Journeys, there's two thin pieces of paper on which he records year by year the number of sermons he preached. You know, it just fascinates me that guys would record these sorts of things. Um, Two small strips of paper, and I pulled them out and I, I added them all up. And between 1748 and 1791, he preached over 8,000 sermons. If you extrapolate that out to his, the rest of his life when he died in 1806, it is likely that Bacchus preached about 10,000 sermons in the course of his pastoral ministry. He attended ordination councils. He helped in the constituting of churches. Uh, he saw men, itinerant men, he, that would go off in, into the frontier. Uh, one, of the, one of the things that I've studied uh, in detail in Maine are the records of an itinerant by the name of Isaac Case, whom Bacchus read a letter from Maine to uh, in 1783 and sent him off into Maine to found churches. And I, Isaac had an influence, uh, Isaac Case had an influence in founding Dozens of Baptist churches in what was then the district of Maine and known as the frontier. He also had a voluminous correspondence within the the continent from from Maine to South Carolina. He wrote uh, often to Richard Furman. And then across the Atlantic, there are are records in his uh, papers at Andover Newton of, of letters to Benjamin Wallen, to John Gill, and to John Rippon. He clearly was a man connected with the Baptists and the cause far and wide. The fourth area where he had an influence was in the founding of Rhode Island College. Rhode Island was one of the, was, uh, it may well have been the only, but it was certainly one of the few colonies uh, in, the new con- in the new nation um, that had no, uh, it had no college. The colony had no college. It, they originally... The Philadelphia Association wanted to found a college for Baptists where they would be welcome. And they thought of New Jersey, but New Jersey already had one. So they said, well, let's go to Rhode Island. And so the Rhode Island College was founded. Uh, Philadelphia sent James Manning there in 1763. And in 1765, uh, Manning was elected president. Bacchus was elected one of the trustees, and they began to hold classes. Bacchus held that position for 34 years. Its first class of 1769 graduated seven men, and uh, um, William McLaughlin notes that by the end of the century, over 300 students had graduated from Rhode Island College. Over 30 of them had entered the ministry. One of the things that you have to note about the colleges of the colonial era is they weren't, they weren't ministerial training colleges. Somebody present, some people present them that way. Um, they really weren't technically seminaries. They were more like liberal arts colleges. And therefore, uh, you would go if you wanted to be a lawyer or a doctor uh, or a minister, you would go and get a good, solid liberal arts education. That doesn't mean they weren't rich in theology and Bible, but it wasn't the main focus. Um, But Rhode Island College had a significant influence uh, for good among the Baptists as as, um, strongly well-educated men began to get out into the pulpits and the, the level of education began to rise. Some have thought Bacchus was an, was an anti-intellectual. That you, and this is where you have to be careful in the colonial literature. You'll hear them talk against the learned ministry. 
Well, they don't mean that they have anything against solid learning as ministers. What they mean is that a college education is not necessary to the pastoral office. That what is necessary is a good, solid grounding in Scripture and the call of God. So when they speak against a learned ministry, you have to be careful how you read that. But they were very much in favor of an educated ministry. And Bacchus himself advocated, even though he did not have a college education, the value of such for those who would pursue the ministry. Well, another area where Bacchus was influential was in the founding of Warren, uh, the Warren Baptist Association. Uh, the, the, uh, the call went out by uh, James Manning on September 8th of 1767. Bacchus actually attended the first meeting. He actually moderated the first meeting, but chose not to attend. He chose not, or not to, to join. He, he, he continued to attend, but he chose not to join because he felt that the Warren Association, in its original formulation, didn't really protect the independence of the local church quite enough. And so he worked very closely over the next three years with James Manning to revise the documents on which the, uh, the association was founded such that he felt comfortable with the protection of the local church and its independence. In 1769, James Manning published the Sentiments and Plan of the Warren Association, uh, and he listed justification for the association as follows. It's a great document. It's fairly short. I'd encourage you, if you can find a copy, to get it. Um, and if you want to know how to do that, you can see me later. It's an old kind of PDF copy, but it's still an interesting read. The, uh, the sentiment and plan says this, that such a combination of churches is not only prudent but useful, as has appeared even in America by experience of upwards 60 years. He's talking about the Philadelphia Association here. Some of the uses of it are union and communion among themselves, maintaining more effectively the order and faith once delivered to the saints, having advice in cases of doubts and help and distress, being more able to promote the good of the cause and becoming important in the eye of the civil powers, as has already appeared in many instances on this continent. Additionally, interestingly enough, the Warren Association indicates its doctrinal foundation. It says, The faith and order of this association are expressed in a confession put forth by upwards of a hundred congregations in Great Britain in the year 1689 and adopted by the Association of Philadelphia in 1740. A very important uh, piece to the overall process. The association did some interesting things for the churches of New England. First of all, when they met annually for the meeting, the churches that were destitute of pastors, they would assign preaching schedules. So they, the brothers would volunteer. I can preach two, two Sundays in the next six months, and they'd assign two dates. And they were sent back to these churches. We have assigned preaching. You will have stated preaching on given dates, and it was very much a comfort and encouragement to the churches who were destitute. The churches were popping up without pastors. They had more churches than they had pastors. Another thing they began was a ministerial education fund to help young men get educated for the ministry. Bacchus oversaw that particular committee. And a third thing was mission support. They began mission, uh, mission works. Massachusetts Baptist Missionary Society was founded um, later uh, but initially, they would support missions within the local assembly. Well, the last thing I want to deal with, uh, and I don't have much time, 
But let me just uh, let me just address a couple things. Bacchus was also an advocate of religious liberty. And this is where the secular historians uh, love Isaac Bacchus and where most of the material is still available in print. Um, it's fairly new. William McLaughlin of Brown University. By the way, I don't think I said this, but Rhode Island College became Brown University. And William McLaughlin is one of the major Bacchus scholars, or I should say was one of the major Bacchus scholars uh, before his death. Um, and he wrote, uh, wrote a lot on Bacchus, brought a lot of his material to, to the fore. But the, the, the Baptists in Massachusetts before the American Revolution and even to some, for some years afterwards were really uh, harassed by the uh, standing order churches, the Congregationalists. The plight of dissent in colonial New England is fairly legendary. Roger Williams and Ann Hutchinson in the 1630s, the whipping of Obadiah Holmes for his Baptist beliefs in the 1650s, the dismissal of Henry Dunster, the first president of Harvard, for, for opposing infant baptism, even going so far as to hang the Quaker Mary Dyer in the 1660s. In fact, the revocation of the Massachusetts Charter in the late 17th century was in part because of such abuses. As a separate, as a separate Baptist, Bacchus's mother uh, in the 1750s had actually been thrown in jail for failure to pay the ministerial tax rate. In colonial New England, when, uh, the, when a community was founded, they would build a church and call a man and every, every taxpayer in the community was required to pay the salary of that minister. And the Baptists and the separate congregationalists said, no, no, we'll pay for our own minister. We're not paying for yours. And they objected for conscience reasons in paying that tax. And they were dealt with severely for it. Uh, Isaac Bacchus's mother, she was not a Baptist, but she was a separatist. And she as well refused to pay the minister's rates, as they were called, and a famous letter was written by her to her son. It's been published often, but let me just read it quickly to you. My dear son, I have heard something of the trials among you of late, and I was grieved till I had strength to give up the case to God and leave my burden there. And now I would tell you something of our trials. Your brother Samuel lay in prison 20 days. October 15th, the collectors came to our house and took me away to prison about 9 o'clock in a dark, rainy night. She was sitting by the fire wrapped in blankets. She was sick. And she was by the fire trying to sweat out the fever. And they came and dragged her to prison, 9 o'clock at night, in the dark, in the rain, in November. It was, it was amazing. You, you see these things and you go, really? Um, sometimes we have far too pristine a view of religious life in colonial America. At any rate, she says, Brothers Hill and Sabins were brought there the next night. We lay in prison 13 days and were set at liberty by what means I know not. I'm not going to finish the letter, but it's, they would even throw a widow in jail for failure to pay the minister's rates. Well, the process of winning religious liberty was long um, and difficult in New England. Uh, just to shorten things up a bit, um, the English Toleration Act of 1689 was supposed to apply to the colonies. The New England authorities kind of turned a blind eye to it. In 1727 and 28, exemption laws were passed. They exempted Anglicans, Quakers, and Baptists. But there was no provision in the law to force the local authorities to, to, uh, to obey. It was one of those laws that if you violated, there was no consequence. 
no penalty whatsoever. And so the local tax collectors would frequently violate it. They would, uh, they would charge them. What you had to do in colonial New England is you had to actually pay the tax and then sue the town to get it back. Well, if you're a fairly poor farmer, what are you going to do in the meantime? And then they would, you'd have to go to court, and the court sometimes would say, well, you don't have the right documentation. They would delay it. It could take you five years to get that money back. Meanwhile, you've got to pay it the next year and the next year and the next year. It was hugely problematic. And the reasons the Baptists objected was they weren't, they weren't objecting to paying taxes. They were objecting to paying taxes without representation. They even quote such in their documents when, they are, when the Constitution, uh, the, the, the convention rather, in Philadelphia is coming together and the rhetoric of the colonies is taxation without representation. In one of their documents they say, we are taught to think that no taxation can be equitable where such restraints are laid upon the tax to take from him the liberty of giving his own money freely. This being true, permit us to ask, with what is our property taken from us, not only without our consent, but violently, contrary to our wills, and for such purposes we cannot in faithfulness to the stewardship of God, uh, we cannot in faithfulness to that stewardship with which God has entrusted us favor. It was a very difficult time. Bacchus was selected to go to the Carpenter's Hall uh, in Philadelphia to meet with the Constitutional Convention, not the Constitutional Convention, the Convention, rather, of the colonies there in 1774. He met with John Adams, Samuel Treat Payne, Samuel Adams, and one other. And Adams made a famous statement as the, the Quakers actually set up the meeting for the Baptists. The Pennsylvania Quakers set up the meeting for the New England Baptists. And Adams and Payne... Uh, were furious. They felt that this was just uncalled for, that they had been blindsided. And Sam Adams and John Adams both agreed, there is indeed an ecclesiastical establishment in our province, but it is a very slender one and hardly to be called an establishment. (laughs) That's their response. They had taken, just one example, in Asheville, Massachusetts, they took a man's property, 300 and uh, uh, some odd pounds worth, if you go by the English money of the time, sold it for 19 pounds. The local congregational minister bought it, tore up some of the fruit trees, which is really what he wanted, and offered to sell it back to the owner for more than he had just paid for it from the town authorities. Um, the, The Massachusetts legislature actually passed a law against the Asheville Baptists, so just, for their, just for their sake alone, to enable them to tax them without their consent. It was a huge battle that was fought by Isaac Bacchus and the Baptists in New England. Isaac was at the core of it. The uh, Warren Association established a grievance committee where they would, the churches would start sending letters and they would, they would um, plead with the political authorities. Finally, they decided that what they should do is just refuse to pay no matter what, refuse to even get the certificate. Um, you had to get a certificate that exempted you. They said, this is not a matter uh, of toleration. This is a matter of religious liberty. And so they stood their ground. And though it took some time, the liberties that you and I enjoy today both nationally and within our individual states, at least here in New England especially, were largely won through the efforts of men like Isaac Bacchus. Well, where do we go with this? A couple of things that I would say in conclusion. 
Um, there's so much to say about Isaac Backus, but it, we always want to kind of bring it home and see if we can apply it some to ourselves. First of all, I need to say this. Backus had a passion for the church. In a day and age where it seems so many Christians find the church irrelevant, unnecessary, um, we need to get back to that. Now, I, I know I'm singing to the choir here, so I understand that. But we must never give up our passion for the church. And Bacchus had an unfailing passion for the church of Jesus Christ. And it's such an encouragement to see how God used that. The second thing I would say is Bacchus is a good example of us to follow with respect to the the pursuit of ministerial education. If you go back into the Baptist records, you see it in England in the 17th century. You see it in colonial New England in the 18th century. There's a heart on the part of the churches to help young men train for ministry. And I am so encouraged this week with some of the things I have heard uh, with even respect to ministerial training. But it needs to be a passion for us. The churches of the next generation need us to support them in having able men, qualified men, to pastor them. Bacchus teaches us the value of those things. There's another one, though, one more positive and then a negative. You may know Steve was going to be speaking on Adoniram Judson this morning. Adoniram Judson was actually a graduate of Brown University, but not a Baptist. Uh, He went on to become the first, with with several others, one of the first American missionaries uh, to go to a foreign country. And, uh, I, and um, uh, Adoniram Judson, on the way over to India to work for a short period of time with William Carey, became a Baptist. So did Luther Rice, one of the other five men who went with him, uh, went over uh, to India. And they got to India. They became Baptists. They had been sent out by the congregationalists. So what do we do? Well, with a clear conscience, we have to resign our commission with the Congregationalists. So what they decided to do was send Luther Rice back to the United States to see what he could do to drum up support among the Baptists. And what you find is Luther Rice had, when he returned to the United States in, uh, in 1814, a network of over a thousand Baptist churches through dozens and dozens of Baptist associations to which he could appeal to support of the the explosion of foreign missions that began for the United States in 1812 with the sending of Adoniram Judson. What is my point? My point is is that we need to connect home missions and foreign missions. That I don't mind the term, but the concept of in sometimes in the way we distinguish those was somewhat foreign in Baptist's day. But we need to see a healthy foreign missions is grounded in healthy home missions. And I'm so encouraged to see the moves that God and his providence have brought us to as an association over the last several years and in, in, in beginning to pursue um, with more opportunity home missions. I'm, I'm, I'm encouraged by those things and down the road they can have a huge influence. The last thing I would say, uh, and I'm just taking back the time that Steve stole from me in his, note, in his uh, announcements. The last thing I would say is this. If I were to consider one flaw, and I know there are many, he was a man of warts and a man of flesh like Elijah and like you and me. But if I were to look at Bacchus, at least for our sake, and say, what is one area where we could learn from one of his mistakes? I would have to say, um, I think Isaac Bacchus 
um, could have done a better job of doctrinal foundations for the churches he planted. What had become the practice in his day is that, 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 as you saw, the Warren Association talked about the 1689, but they kind of summarized it uh, in, in, in shorter doctrinal statements. And when itinerant preachers went out, as they did in Maine and into the Maritime Provinces, they took these shortened, kind of truncated doctrinal statements with them and founded churches in many of the frontier regions um, without that did not have access to the 1689 confession. Well, ultimately what began to happen is because those doctrinal statements were highly truncated, the theology began to water down. And you have the churches beginning to embrace more and more Arminian principles. And by, within, a, within a matter of tw- just 20, less than 25 years after Bacchus died, the northern churches embraced the New Hampshire confession. Now, the New Hampshire Confession, um, for, for all its good, is not a robust Calvinist confession. It's not the 1689. And I think you can chart uh, historically a doctrinal slide that begins during this era because of a failure to keep a robust doctrinal foundation in the forefront and the foundation of churches. So I would encourage us in these things to be careful with our theology, to be hopeful with our missions, and to enjoy the grace of God as he is pleased to flourish and bless those things. Thank you.